Today is the final sermon in our final charge series, and we'll be at our John chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 17 and uh, be able to follow along. We'll be, I'll be reading out the NASB version, and uh, this is what our Lord's been doing since Easter. He resurrected, and after Easter, he resurrected, for, and it was around the earth for about 40 days, and then he finally ascended back to heaven. And this is what he's been doing for the church this whole time. The Bible says he has never ceased to stop praying for his church as he's at the right hand of the Father. Right now, our Lord is praying for you and me, the church. And he's praying for us. And this is what he's praying for out of John 17. Just a little bit of context before we start reading the text is John 17 is just packed with so much truth, so much theology, so much richness in the Godhead. But this will be a two-part sermon. This is part two. Part one was preached before a good... uh, 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 the triumphant entry on Palm Sunday sermon by Pastor Victor. But part one, just as a review, Jesus was praying for eternal security, eternal life. He's been praying for. He's been praying that all of us would be kept. So to those of you who are 12, if you genuinely have put your trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus is praying for eternal security right now. He's doing that for you right now. And today, our part two of, our, of John 17, the Lord's Prayer, he's praying for our journey right now. Brothers and sisters, we're not home yet. We're on a journey. We're not home yet. There is no coronavirus in heaven. There is no safer at home mandates in heaven. We're not home yet. This is not home. And we're on this journey that we've been, we've been placed on. And Jesus is praying for us to get right into heaven. Every step of the way, Jesus is praying for you and for me right now until we get make, make it into his presence. And he's praying for us. And this is what he's praying for on our journey. So this week's sermon, we're focusing on the Lord's Prayer. But in particular, he's praying that we may be one. Right, children, that we may be one. He's praying for this right now. So please rise if you're able to. John 17, verse 14 through 26. This is God's word. This is God's prayer for us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I've not asked you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Verse 21. That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even 
as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Verse 26. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known. Why? So that, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray briefly. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray your word is preached. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray you would embed these truths in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. That we may be one, all right, children, that we may be one is what Jesus is praying for. And this week now, maybe for the children or for the parents, um, our family, we watch a pilgrim, the Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, on, we got an email that allowed us to see this most, uh, most up-to-date cartoon version of Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress is a book written by John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a preacher in the late 1600s in England. And he was persecuted. He was put in jail for preaching the gospel. And while he was in prison, he wrote this classic called Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory for the Christian life. The main character, of course, is God. He's called the king. But the next main character is a character named Christian. And Christian is on a journey as he leaves the city of destruction, which is a metaphor for the world, and journeys, just like we're on, journeys to the celestial city to be with the king, which is heaven, right? And so that, that movie has inspired me to reread a, a, a book. Here's a little uh, Pilgrim's Progress. This is a more modern version, not a 1600 uh, English version, but a uh, 2000 version. And uh, Helen Taylor kind of rewrote the book uh, to fit children. And this has been, uh, we've just been going through a couple chapters a night reading. And it's been a very fruitful thing for our family. But as, as Christian has left, the city of destruction has been many bumps and turns and, 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 and adversity on the way to the celestial city. And just like Christian, we're all pilgrims. We're not home yet. We're not home yet. And uh, we're all on a journey. And verse 20 says that Jesus is praying for us. Right here, verse 20 says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the 12 disciples, but for those who believe in me through their word, Jesus is literally praying for you and me as we're on our pilgrim's uh, journey as well. Okay, so point number one, Jesus is praying. This is, we're going right to the text. Jesus is praying that we may be one in the pursuit of holiness. That we may be one in the pursuit of holiness. And verse 14 and verse 11, let me back up to verse 11. Jesus prays this, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. Why? That they may be one, even as we're at one. Our Lord has left earth and is with the Father, and he's praying that we would be one in the world. 
All right, what is the world? The world is the world system that's set up against God, in essence. So if you're a Christian, all right, if you're a brother or sister in the Lord, the system is not meant for us. And we don't buy into this system. We don't contribute to this system. Therefore, the world will hate us, the Bible says. Verse 14 I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world. We're not of the world. You're not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, because Jesus, our King, is not of the world. And this world system is built upon a system that has, is opposing values to Jesus, opposing affections, opposing treasures, different agenda from Christ, different goals, different hopes. Therefore, expect opposition. As we preached on last week on Easter Sunday, expect opposition because the world is not rooting for us. But take heart. Our Lord, the one who controls all things by the power of his word, is praying for us and he's for us. And who is against us and who is the designer or the grand architect of the world system? It's Satan. It's the devil himself. The devil's real. All right? But he has nothing on our Lord. Satan is the ruler of the world. He's the designer, the architect of the world system. And he hates God. He absolutely hates God. He is jealous of God. He wants what God has. He wants God's glory. Therefore, he hates God's children. He hates all the Christians of the world as well. And his desire for us is that he wants to snatch. He wants to take away the faith that we have. But rest assured, verse 11 says that Jesus is praying, keep them, Holy Father, in your name. That means protect them, preserve us. Verse 15 here says, I'd not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Satan is the evil one. Jesus is praying for our protection. So there's no way we could lose our salvation. There's no way Satan could snatch our faith from us. All right? Rest assured, brothers and sisters, not our own convictions, not our own strength or our, our, our own endurance, but God is ensuring that we can never lose our salvation. He holds us in his arms, John 10 says, as Jesus is the good shepherd. But what Satan can do, hear me very carefully now, brothers and sisters, what he can do is this. He could absolutely destroy a witness to this world he could destroy our effectiveness for Christ. It's a war. This journey, this pilgrim's progress that we're on, it's a war. This is not a, a, a cruise ship that we're on. We're on a battleship. And he wants to destroy our effectiveness. How? How, how does Satan go about doing this? How does Satan destroy our witness, tarnish our witness, snatch the effectiveness from us? Well, by getting us to love the world, by getting us to be about the world, to be about its values, to be about its, the way it thinks, to live for its treasures, to live for its hopes that it offers. Therefore, when we do that, we start looking like the world, and there is no difference in us. And then our witness gets blended in with everybody else, and then our effect in this goes right down the tubes. Now, going back to Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and a 
colleague that he meets, a companion named Faithful, two of them, Christian and Faithful, are called to go through a place called Vanity Fair. And I know Pastor Dan uh, mentioned this maybe last year or so in one of his sermons, but Vanity Fair is a town, and they have this ongoing fair, like a carnival. And everyone at the fair represents some sort of evil in this world, all right? And, and they're in opposition to what God wants or the king wants, all right? And, and, and some pilgrims, the, the book says, that have journeyed into Vanity Fair who, who planned on going to the celestial city, but they proved that they weren't real pilgrims because they, decide, they abandoned that goal and they liked Vanity Fair. They, they decided to stay there and live there. And they forfeited their witness. Not only that, they showed that they perhaps weren't even true disciples, true pilgrims. And when Christian and faithful arrive, what happens is this. They, they completely stick out. All the goods and the merchandise that Vanity Fair was selling, things of the world like lust, pleasure, reputation, all these things that they were pushing, Christian and faithful wouldn't buy it. They didn't buy any of it. And when they were asked, why aren't you buying these things from us? This is because we only buy things that are true. We're about the truth. That's what Christian and faithful said. And everything sold there was a lie. It's a counterfeit to, to what God promises. None of these things could bring you joy and happiness. Therefore, Christian gets mistreated. Christian and faithful are mistreated. They're spat on. They're jailed. They're tortured. They go through some trial. And eventually, faithful is killed. All right? And so, and this is a metaphor for the world. Vanity Fair is just a picture for, uh, for the world. Metaphor just means picture children. It's a picture of what our world, world is like. And... As, 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 as Jesus prayed here, what is the keys to being effective in the world? Well, let's look at verse 17. How do we stick out in our vanity fair today? How do we do that? Verse 17 says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. Is truth. Sanctify. What does that mean? To make holy. To set apart from the world. For us to be holy, just like Jesus, just like the Holy Father, to be set apart from the world, we need truth, the Bible says right here, what Jesus is praying for. So Jesus is praying for our sanctification, that we will be different in the world, that we will be distinct from the world. We will completely stick out from the world, from vanity fair of our lives. And remember in Pilgrim's Progress, we just talked about in vanity fair, Christian and faithful, all they wanted is things that are true. And because the truth sets you apart, it makes you think like Christ. The more lies that we believe, the more lies that we live under, we start looking like the world. And lies are just basically empty promises of the world. And second part, he says, your word is truth. Your word is truth. Psalms 119, 60 says, the sum of your words is truth. In essence, what is true? The Bible. The Bible is God's word. Psalms 119, 160, excuse me. It says, the sum of your words is truth. 
And so if you want truth, if you want to be more sanctified, we need to dig into the scriptures. We need to study the Bible. We need to make sure that we're getting more Bible in than what the world is giving us through Netflix, through Disney+, Plus, through the Internet, through things that we're reading. Are we getting just as much truth, if not more truth? Are we spending more time studying the God's Word, listening to good sermons, sitting under good teaching, involved with adult education? Are we doing that? Because the truth sanctifies, the truth sets us apart and makes us more like Christ. And in going back to verse 11 of John 17, towards the end of verse 11, it says that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is praying that we're one in the world. Jesus is praying that we have faithful, another faithful in our lives that we're not walking through life alone, that we may be one, that we, the people, the fellowship that we have, church, Evergreen SGV has committed to one purpose, that's achieving and growing in our holiness, to look more like Christ, so that we could be, remain faithful. Christian had faithful in his life, so that he could, and these two were encouraging one another, let's be faithful to the king. Let's not acquiesce to what Vanity Fair is telling us to do. Let's be about the truth. And this is called discipleship. They were in an intentional relationship with one another for becoming more like the king or like Christ. And this is what I'm praying for. This is what I'm praying for, that our church family will be one in this mindset. We'll be about discipleship. We'll be about evangelism to bring people to Christ. But to those of us who are in here, we are committed to helping each other become more like Christ. That's why if you're part of the 12 that gave your life to Christ last week, show us who you are so that we can help you become more like Christ. And this is what Jesus is praying for, for our unity in, this, in, in the pursuit of our holiness, that we will be unified. This is what Jesus desires. This is right out of God's word. Because we have the enti entire satanic order against us to fall for all the vanity fairs in our lives. That we'll, we'll settle for mere trinkets for the, and, and give up the treasure of the universe, Jesus Christ himself. So we, therefore, we need one another. We absolutely need one another. And moving on to our second point here, what does perfect unity look like? Well, let's just take the time to read verse 21 to 23. Jesus compares unity with himself, with the Godhead. Verse 21, that they may be one. All right, he's praying that they may be one even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Let's skip to verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. These words that are used in verse 21 and verse 22, it says even as or just as. That's like saying today, just like. All right, that we will be one just like the Godhead is one. So Jesus is giving us a perfect example of what oneness or unity looks like. The Trinity models to the church what we're called to be like. So we need to look at that. Therefore, we need to look at what the Godhead looks like. We need to understand what this is all about. And there are very distinct parallels as I studied what the, our Trinitarian God is like and what the church is like 
there's some very distinct parallels, and I'm going to hopefully try to make that clear for us today. All right, the Bible says that the, the God of the Bible is made up of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what theologians call the Trinity. We, have a, we worship a triune God. However, in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Bible says the Lord is one. All right, how does that make sense? How does three equal one? Well, from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, 26, God leaves little clues. God leaves little clues that there is the Trinity here, the, God, the Holy Godhead, and that we're called to be one in the Holy Godhead, just like our Lord is. Genesis 1, 26, when he created man, the Bible says, let us make man in our image. Did you get that? Let us, plural pronoun, make man in our image. He's not talking to the angels. God is not talking to the angels here. We're not made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of God himself. Let us make man in our image. Genesis 1, 26. So our Godhead is made up of three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And there was a heresy that arose in the early part of uh, of Christianity called modalism. What is modalism? All right, it's still alive today. Modalism basically means God exists as one, but depending on the situation, he may exist as the Father at one time, and then, boof, he, then he'll morph to the Son, and then he'll morph to the Holy Spirit, depending on what situation. But in essence, he's that one person that morphs into different beings. That's not true. That's not true. Remember at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, who, who was present at the same time? Jesus was being baptized. The Holy Spirit ascended like a dove. And the Father's voice came out saying, This is, you're my son who I'm pleased, who I'm well pleased. All three existed at the same time, where modalism would say God could only exist in one of those forms at one time, never all three at once. But clearly the scriptures talks about how the, how the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct beings. Now, how can three be one, right? That's, that's a good question. How can three be one? They're one because they're, they have one and the same essence, one and the same nature, one and the same character. John 1.1 1, 1 says this about Jesus. The Word was God. Jesus is the Word. The Word was God. Jesus was God. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus was God. Jesus is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. God the Father is eternal. They've all existed for eternity. No one has created them. John 5 says that Jesus is equal to the Father. One and the same. One and the same works. They do the same thing. One and the same knowledge. They know the same things. One of the same power, they could raise people from the dead. They could give life. One of the same in judgment. Only God could judge. One of the same in honor. Verse 5 of chapter 17 says they have the same glory. Jesus is God. No other. Jesus is God himself. A heresy that existed back then. Soon after the church was born, was called Arianism. Arianism basically believed that Jesus 
is a created being. Perhaps like an angel, like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, or perhaps a created son of God, like the Mormons believe, but not God, not eternal with the Father. These are all heresies. According to the Bible, what I just read to you, Jesus is God. Same essence, same nature, same character. The, the Godhead, moving along, has the same divine value. They're all God. Matthew 28, 19, that great, the, the Great Commission, Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father, in the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Same divine value. And why are they one? How can three be one? Here's another reason. Because they have one and the same mission. Jesus says, I will build my church. All three beings in the Trinity were involved in this mission. They had the same mission. But they had distinct roles. Now let me explain. The Father is the one who sends Jesus. All right? The Father's role was to send Jesus. He had this divine plan to save the church. Jesus' role in it was to obey the Father and to redeem humanity by going to the cross, which he did perfectly. And then the Bible says that the Son and the Father sends the Holy Spirit to regenerate people like you and me so that we will believe in the message of the gospel. So even in this role of building the church, all three members have dif different roles, yet they're equal, yet they have the same essence, same nature. And this is similar to the church. Let's shift our attention to the church. The church is one body, the Bible says. Just like we have one God, we have one body. There's only one church. That's every single Christian that ever to live are part of this body, one body. But 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says this, although we have, there's one body, many different members. I'm one member, Pastor Kenny, Pastor Victor, Daniel G. We're all different members, but we make up one body. And then we have the same essence. Just like the Trinity within, within the church, we have the same essence. We have the same, one and the same na nature. Let me just take time to read Ephesians chapter 4 for us, verse 4. 5 and 6. It says that we have one body, one nature, one spirit, one nature, one hope, one nature, one Lord, one nature, one faith, one baptism, and one God the Father. We have the same nature. Therefore, we have the same value. We're all children of God. Right? Just like the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in value. Every single Christian is equal in value with one another. Remember this, we were all made in the image of God. And secondly, we're all bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Same value. Man, woman, and child, doesn't matter. We, all Christians have the same value. And just like the Godhead, we have one and the same mission. And that mission is to build up the church by making disciples, by building up the disciples. And we all have different gifts Romans 12 says that we have distinct roles and different uh, spiritual gifts. Even gender is a gift. Being male and female in the church, we blend with one another. We complement one another. 
Even that's a gift. And the Bible says that we're to speak the truth in love to build each other up. And we're all called to exercise our unique and special gifts so that we can help each other grow and to become more like Christ. That's what discipleship's all about, for us all to become more like Christ. Back to a pilgrim's progress, all right? I had a question to our family, and I asked this question. Why did Christian and faithful need to go through Vanity Fair? Why? I asked you that question. Why couldn't they just take more of a... Uh, go around Vanity Fair on the map and get to the celestial city a lot sooner without all that pain and suffering. Why? Why did Jesus say that I send them into the world, I, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but to protect them? Why does Jesus send you and me into the world? Why are we in the San Gabriel Valley or wherever you're watching right now, maybe Orange County, South Bay perhaps? Why? Well, in the narrative of the Pilgrim's Progress, a new character emerges. And, and, this, and this new character's name is Hopeful. Right? This, this character called Hopeful emerges in, in this narrative. And Hopeful saw the unified nature of how Christian and faithful faced adversity and persecution. They took on the full force of Vanity Fair. Faithful died but both of them remain faithful to the king. And Hopeful saw this. Hopeful saw how uh, Christian and, and faithful handled persecution and hardships. That's why. And Hopeful wanted what Christian and faithful had. He left Vanity Fair. He left the world to go with Christian on his journey to the celestial city. That's why. That's why we're called to be one, united like Christian, faithful, so that the world can see. Let's look at verse 21 of John 17 here. Second part. So that the world may believe that you sent me. In the very next verse, verse 22. Verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. When we're unified, the world sees the conviction that we have and they want the same thing. Are you picking up the hopefuls in your life as you're walking through our vanity fair, as we're going through our trials? Are people seeing us unified in Christ, in the hope that we have in Christ, in the faith that we have in Christ? Are the hopefuls watching us? Perhaps it's a relative. Perhaps it's in our own families. Perhaps it's our co-workers. Perhaps it's someone on the street as we go on our family walks and we can see somebody watching us. Who are the hopefuls in our lives? That's why Christian and faithful have to go to the Vanity Fair because they're on a mission. They need to collect the legitimate pilgrims to help them on their journey to the celestial city. There's a reason why, brothers and sisters, why you and I are in the world. There's a reason why we're called to be united, just like the Holy Godhead, to be one, like the Holy Godhead, so that the world may see, so that the world may come to know Christ Jesus as Lord. Very strategic by our King. Now, what, and our third and final point here, what, what is Jesus praying for? Well, he's praying that we may be one in holy love. 
This is the most exciting part of this sermon. This is the most exciting part. This finish to this prayer that Jesus prays, that we may be one in holy love, perfect love. Well, Christian and faithful, back to Pilgrim's Progress, they eventually make it to the celestial city. They make it to be with loved ones that they lost, faithful, reunited with faithful, other people. And they, most importantly, they get to be united with the king and they see his glory. Love. This is what this is about. This is what this whole plan that the father had was about. It's about love. The Bible says God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. And we're called to be in loving relationships with one another. Why? Because loving relationships is at the core of our God. This is who our God is. God has been in a loving relationship within himself for eternity. How can God say that God is love since he's an eternal being, meaning he existed forever before creation? Let me read verse 24 for us at the end. Jesus is making a statement, for you love me, for you, Father, loved me, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Jesus is basically making a true statement, Father, you've loved me before we've created anything before angels, before any universe, any people, any animals, any plants, anything, Jesus is saying, Father, you've loved me. That's why God is able to say, declare that God is love in the Bible. Because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have loved each other perfectly for all eternity. Love is at the core of who our God is. And the church... Every single Christian, you and me, is a love gift from the Father to the Son. Let me, hear, let me say that one more time. Hear, listen very carefully. The church is a love gift from the Father to the Son. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, the Father has given them to Jesus and Jesus loves the church. This isn't one of those things where Jesus says, okay, Father, I'll obey you, you know, just because I love you. But Jesus actually loves the church. Jesus loves you. I mean, look how much he loves us. Let's look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Jesus desires for the church to be with him in heaven forever. This isn't some rescue mission where Jesus never sees us forever. Okay, they're saved, they're in heaven someplace. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, I've saved them so they could be with me forever. Jesus loves the church. Jesus wants us to be with them. Jesus has deep affection and love for the church. He loves us. And he wants us to be with him forever. This is love. This is love. When God says, God is love, this is love. This is love lived out. And right here, when it says that, when we see him, that Jesus says that 
so we could be with him so that we may see his glory. This is a future glory that we're looking forward to, church. This is not a glory that we even could even comprehend right now. Someday when we see Jesus face to face, the Bible says that we will become like him. I want to read this. 1 John chapter 3. Going to the back of the Bible. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. All right, this is important that we understand this. 1 John, same author, different book, towards the end. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says this. Beloved, talking to Christians, we're the beloved. Now we are children of God. We're children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we'll be. We're not in our final state. As good as you and I have been on this planet, I don't know how encouraging or disappointing that's been to you. We're not even close to what we're going to be like someday. Reading along, reading ahead, it says, We know, verse chapter 2, I mean, chapter 3, verse 2 of 1 John, we know that when he appears, when we see Christ, he, capital H, when Jesus appears, we will be like him, like Jesus, because we see him just as he is. We're going to be glorified like Jesus someday. We're going to have new bodies someday. We're not going to have sin to deal with someday. We're not going to have to worry about the coronavirus someday. We're not going to have to be worried about our health someday. We're not going to be worried about our relational uh, strains that we've had with other people someday. We're going to be just like Jesus. And since Jesus is love, we're going to be able to love perfectly like Jesus. Not only do we experience that perfect love, that perfect love transforms us, and we are able to love in return in that way. We're going to be completely transformed, sinless. Seeing Jesus, we become like him. That's why it's important that we're with him so that we could see him for who he is. Let me jump down to verse 26 here of, of John 17. Back to John 17. Look at the reason why Jesus let us know who the Father is. Remember, knowing the one and true living God is what eternal life is. Know, have a deep, intimate relationship not just head knowledge i just i know about god i know about jesus no 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 do you love him do you have a deep intimate relationship with him this is what it's saying i have made your name known to them to the disciples who later on uh, modern day disciples like us who we believe through the words of john and we'll make it known why this is this is where it's at so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The same, in other words, the same love that the Father, same quality of love that the Father has for the Son is how we're loved by God. And now we have that within us. We get to enjoy this love relationship with this eternal love relationship that's been going on forever. And not only do we just get to see it, we get to be a part of this love relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the only way we could be part of that love relationship is if we're able to love perfectly like God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. This is the miracle of all miracles where we just, boom, we're transformed into becoming like Christ. We don't get to become gods, but we get to become like Christ. Remember this, brothers and sisters, God is love. God is love, and we'll perfectly love God, and we'll perfectly love one another. Think about every strained relationship that you have within the church this church or universal church, any other Christians, all that's done away with. None of that even matters anymore. We're loving Christ. We're loving the Father. We're loving the Holy Spirit. And we're loving each other. We're saying, yes, we're one with this perfect love relationship. We get to be sharing what the essence of the Trinitarian relationship is all about now. In conclusion here, I want to just, just talk about, as I was preparing for the sermon, one verse came to mind, 1 Corinthians 13. This is the love chapter. If you have a Bible, please turn there, 1 Corinthians 13. It's worth it. Verse 13. Well, let's back up to verse 12 here. It says this. For now we see in the mirror dimly. Like for now. On this side of eternity, we, we see the scriptures, you see the word preached, you see other Christians that rem may remind you of Christ more. But compared to seeing Christ, it's a very dim picture. We know enough to know Christ, certainly. The Bible is the clearest, clearest revelation of who Jesus is. And thank God we have the Bible. But compared to seeing face to face, it's a dim picture. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just I, as I also have been fully known. Meaning, when we see Jesus for the first time, face to face, and throughout eternity, we're going to know him fully. No more dim look at him. It's going to be very clear. It's going to be in person. And we're going to know him, and we're going to become like him. Now, verse 13. Look at the divine realities here. Look at the eternal realities here that I've talked about. But now, faith... Hope, love, abide these three. Faith, hope, love. But Paul makes a grand statement here, but the greatest of these is love. Why is that? Why does love trump faith and hope? Why? Well, Christian finally made it to the celestial city. He made it to heaven. But he had faith that, he, that there was a celestial city, that there was a good king. A man named Evangelist came and told him. He believed what Evangelist said. And, and, and he also had a book that talked about the celestial city. But he never saw it. He, he just thought, believed in and entrusted that this is a real statement found in this book. So he left his home, the city of destruction, and went to the celestial city. But it took him a lot of faith to believe that this thing, this celestial city existed with a great king. But when he finally got to the celestial city, brothers and sisters, faith was done away with. He didn't have to believe or trust anymore. He was looking at the celestial city. He was in the celestial city, staring at the king feeling the king's love. Why is love greater than hope? Through all those trials, through Vanity Fair, through getting stuck in, in the slaw, to being beat up by giants, it was a hard journey now. He had to have hope that he would get there someday. 
and that the celestial city will be worth it. He hoped in these things. Well, brothers and sisters, when he got to the celestial city, hope was done away with. He realized perfectly what God had promised through the book and through evangelist. So just, just like Christian, when we get to heaven, we're no longer going to have to hope in Christ anymore. We're going to see him as he is. We're going to realize that certain perfect hope that we've been talking about, reading about, praying about, singing about. And faith, we don't have to believe or trust anymore. We're going to be there. We're going to be there. But why is love the greatest of these? Because love is going to exist forever. We're going to love God forever perfectly, and we're going to love one another perfectly. Love is the one that lasts forever. All your giftings, our ministries, our roles, the things that we accomplish on this world is not going to matter. But love is. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let's focus in on loving one another by being unified, being one. This is our future reality, brothers and sisters, that we love. Love is what we are called to do right now, and love is what we're going to be doing forever. Our God is great, isn't he? And so no matter what you're going through right now, focus in on loving the Lord and focus on loving one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to preach your word. I thank you for this word out of John 17. Thank you, Jesus, that you are praying for us right now, that we will realize this perfect love someday. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one that will guarantee this because of your faithful and perfect prayer life before the Father. Jesus, we thank you. Father, I pray for our church family, Lord, that we will grow in our love for you and for one another. And I pray this will unify us. This will bring us into closer unity as we help each other pursue holiness. I pray that we unified as we look to you to model the unity that's found in the Godhead. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to partake more in your holy love on this side of eternity until we realize it fully in heaven someday. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to preach your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.